Let's turn now, friends, as the Lord would help us, to that portion we read in Matthew chapter 11. In verses 28, 29, and 30, we have the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ, an invitation that surely ranks alongside Isaiah 1.18 as the two most gracious invitations that the ear of man has ever heard in this world. And what makes him so incredible is that these words come from a holy and just God to sinful men and women and boys and girls. God didn't need to do that. He didn't have to do such a thing because God has no need of us. And as the context demonstrates, Jesus had every reason not to issue this invitation. Look at the context, beginning at verse 20. Then began he to abrade the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. He had every reason not to issue this invitation. Yet that's the backdrop to these wonderful words. Now, this particular invitation, I'm referring to it as an invitation, but in reality, it's a command. It's in the imperative. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and so on. This can be understood, and it can be applied in different ways and to different people. You'll find many ministers using these uh, words in an evangelistic sense. You will find other ministers using these words to apply to backslidden believers. And, <clears throat> excuse me, you will find uh, still more ministers applying these words to Christians who are struggling with the issues of life. Now, we're going to focus, with the Lord's help this morning, not so much on the invitation itself, we are going to focus rather on three words. Three words you will see at the beginning of verse 29. Learn of me. Learn of me. And we shall consider this by exploring two of the most important topics in the gospel and two, the two most important topics that your mind could ever consider. And these are the cross and the crown. The cross and the crown. Now you know that our Lord Jesus was the best teacher ever. He always was and he always will be. And that has a particular significance when the topic he is setting before us is himself, or issues to do with himself. And who better to teach us on matters relating to the cross and relating to the crown 
other than Jesus himself. The one who promises us so many things in connection with the cross and the crown. Now, it is true, of course, that you're here this morning and most of you have a thousand and one other subjects laying heavily on your mind. We're living in very troubled times. The world is in utter turmoil. And we are being threatened virtually with the Third World War. Our leaders are clueless, or they seem to be clueless in this matter. But you know, my friends, all these things will pass. They will pass. Boris has already gone. Nicola, Biden, Putin, and all the rest of them, they'll soon be history. The price of petrol, the cost of living, they won't always be the headlines. But here's a question that never changes. Who among us here this morning is bearing the cross and who among us will wear that crown? I coach the matter in those terms because our teacher himself does. He said in Matthew 16, 24, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And then in Revelation 2, verse 10, be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. Now, to respond to those exhortations, we must take heed of these three words. Learn of me. And in the course of biblical revelation, the Lord Jesus did, of course, use men like Isaiah and Matthew and Paul and Peter and many others. But really, he's the teacher, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. He's the teacher that always spoke through those men. So let's look then, first of all, we just have the two main points this morning, bearing the cross and wearing the crown. So let's look at bearing the cross. <clears throat> now, although we use this phrase, bearing the cross, it's not actually found in the New Testament. The more accurate phrase would be the one I just quoted to you from Matthew 16, this taking up the cross. Now, the closest to bearing the cross in the New Testament is the reference to Simon of Cyrene, where he was told in Luke 23, they laid the cross on him that he might bear it after Jesus. However, in the language of the Christian church and the language of, of the gospel, taking up the cross and bearing the cross have become virtually synonymous terms. They mean the same thing to Christian people. Now, we all know that only Jesus bore the cross physically. So what's implied by believers bearing the cross or taking up the cross, if you prefer? Well, the first matter to get right here is to learn why Jesus himself 
had to bear the cross in the first place. <clears throat> Why a cross? If he had to die, couldn't he have died in some other way? Less gruesome ways. Again, interestingly, the term cross is not found in the Old Testament. The idea of hanging on three is. But that's not referring to crucifixion. Joshua, on an occasion, put to death five of God's enemies. Joshua 10, verse 26. Joshua slew them and hanged them on a tree. He killed them first, and then he hung them on a tree. You see, these men were put to death and then strung up on trees for a particular purpose. Sometimes, um, when, when this didn't happen all the time, but when, when, when someone was put to death through capital punishment in Israel, which was stoning, by the way, that was the main uh, means used to apply capital punishment. When that happened, the victim on occasion was then removed from the community of God's people and strung up on a tree somewhere beyond the parameters of the city or the town, whatever they were living. And the idea of that was that the person was stoned to death, died under the curse of God, so that by taking the body, they were removing the curse away from the people, from the community, and there it hung on the tree, testifying to the fact that God had taken it away. That was the purpose of it. Now, stoning, um, as I said, was the main capital punishment in Israel. In Deuteronomy 21-22, um, it confirms this idea of the stoning and the, and the hanging on the tree. He must be put to death, the victim, the perpetrator, the guilty, and hanged on a tree. So the two things were distinct, the killing and the hanging on the tree. And that's how it ends up being written of Jesus or being applied to Jesus in Galatians chapter 3. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That's not referring to the crucifixion of Jesus. It is referring to that fulfillment of the Deuteronomy 21 passage. Now, it's worth noting also that crucifixion was common for centuries and had been common for centuries all around Israel. It was practiced by the Greeks, by the Romans, by the Phoenicians, by the Persians, by the Babylonians. It was a very common thing all around them, but not in Israel. Now, we know that the crucifixion of Jesus was prophesied in that psalm we were just singing a moment ago. That's why I brought your attention to that particular verse. They pierced my hands and my feet. However, that doesn't really answer the question, why was he crucified? That prophecy in Psalm 22 only made the matter inevitable. 
but it doesn't explain to us why God chose such a gruesome death for his son. If it was a question of blood, and of course that was a very significant component in the matter, because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. Well, why couldn't stoning do? I'm pretty sure anybody stoned to death would have bled. Why couldn't a beheading have done? With plenty of blood there. So we could ask, why didn't Jesus die like John the Baptist died? Quickly, with little suffering, yet blood would have been provided. Well, the answer to those questions, my friends, on the one hand, is quite simply this. So it seemed good to God. On the other hand, we come back to our text. Learn of me. Is there something to learn from the physical crucifixion of Christ as opposed to his actual death? Let's distinguish between the two. Nailing him to the cross and his actual death. Let's distinguish between the two. He was obviously and evidently nailed to that cross. But again, interestingly, nails or nailed, it's not mentioned in any of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the death of Messiah. And indeed, there's only two examples that I can find in the New Testament where nails are used in one way or another in connection with the death of Christ. Colossians 2.14, and this doesn't actually refer to the death of Christ at all, it, not in, in the immediate and direct sense, it actually refers to the condemnation of the law of God, which Jesus removed from all his people. He took it, the condemnation of the law, he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. The second example is an incident between, that took place between Jesus and Thomas, doubting Thomas. So let's learn from Jesus what took place on that occasion. As most of you know, this is recorded for us in John chapter 20. Here's what Thomas said. He was doubting that Jesus actually rose on the third day. And he said, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails. Now, Jesus was nailed to the cross. That's beyond question. Yet, when Jesus replied to Thomas, he made no reference to nails. Reach hither thy finger. And behold my hands. No mention of nails. In other words, he was saying to Thomas, Thomas, focus on the wounds in my hands and my feet. That throws us back on two Old Testament texts, one we've already referred to, Psalm 22. They pierced my hands, and my feet. And the other one is in Zechariah chapter 12. 
They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. The key word in both texts is pierced. Now, piercing, my friends, I would suggest to you, piercing indicates to us more than the mere act of crucifying Jesus of Nazareth. Because in the piercing of those nails, there was pain that went infinitely deeper than what Jesus felt in his skin and in his flesh. And that's what we are to learn from him. That the piercing of his body by nails was symbolic of the piercing of his soul by God's fierce anger as a penalty upon our sins. And that's why he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's why he made cross-bearing so essential to every believer's testimony. But when we do testify as Christians, we don't testify to evil men nailing the Lord Jesus to the cross of Calvary. Oh, no, my friends. We testify to his soul being pierced through for our salvation, for our justification, and for our liberty. So bearing the cross is in effect, my friends, to wear that invisible price tag that says, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. A ransom has been paid for my soul. Unbelievers should notice there's a message here for those of you who don't know Jesus Christ this morning. This piercing of Jesus Christ will have its parallel in the eternal piercing of your conscience should you die in your sins. That's what Jesus meant. He spoke of the conscience, the conscience he had in mind when he spoke in this way, the place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. That's the piercing of the human conscience eternally. So let's learn of him. How to take his yoke. How to bear his cross. How to be free from the threat of this eternal piercing. And how to find rest for our souls. Let's learn of him. The great teacher. Let me move secondly to where in the crowd. <clears throat> We further learn from our Lord that there are rewards 
in this life in the sense of blessings. And it also seems from the overall teaching of the Bible and the New Testament that there seems to be degrees of reward and degrees of blessing in heaven as well as on earth. As I hasten to add, there seems to be degrees of penalty in hell. The Hitlers of this world will suffer far more in hell than the harmless, upright citizen who dies in a sin. Now that, of course, won't make hell any more bearable, my friends, for those who do die in their sins, because one second, one second of eternal torment would be indescribable pain. One second. During his three-year ministry, Jesus preferred to speak in terms of reward rather than of a crown. Matthew 5, 12, great is your reward in heaven. And again in Matthew 10, a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Now, he never meant, of course, reward based on merit. It's not something you can earn. Sadly, there are far too many who believe otherwise. Indeed, the uh, Roman Catholic Church have made this a tenet of their faith. They believe in meritorious grace, reward, and blessings that can be earned by their followers. Now, in a more subtle way, most Protestant churches have people who believe in a very similar fashion. And maybe there are some present here this morning. They don't believe it as a religious doctrine. They believe it as a vain and superstitious hope. This is how it goes. They believe that God will not fail to reward them for their church attendance, for their occasional Bible reading, for their good works, for the kindness, and on and on it goes. They have a list. And not only that, subconsciously, these people put the onus on God. They will agree with you if you said to them, you don't deserve any of that. They will agree with you. But nevertheless, they also believe that the God of love will not fail them in the end. That he will reward them. That he will bless them. Whereas, be it reward or crown, is entirely gratuitous on God's part. By that I mean, it's out of his sheer goodness, grace, mercy, and love. No other way can you ever receive a blessing from God, and certainly no other way that you can receive this crown. Well, the Lord Jesus wants us to learn about wearing this crown, not directly from himself, but rather from three of his inspired apostles. Paul, Peter, and James, they all wrote about this crown, and they wrote about it from three different perspectives interestingly. And they did so as follows. 
James wrote, this is in James 1, verse 12, of the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Now, as I go through these three examples, I would urge you all to think deeply and personally about these issues and how they relate to your realm. The crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love them. Christians are given a crown of life the moment they are born again. It's referred to in another way by Paul in this way, Romans 6.23, the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what happens is this. The Holy Spirit puts this life into our soul, a life that can never be extinguished, a life that can never be taken away from us, a life that we can never lose ourselves. And every Christian you know, and there are Christians sitting somewhere near you here this morning, that Christian, whatever you think of that person, that Christian, be it man or be it woman, be it your or you, that person is wearing the crown of life in the presence of God right now. And shall wear it continually, even as they are overtaken by death. The crown of life. Then Paul wrote, prior to his death, to Timothy chapter 4, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Now, from this perspective, we see the crown in its relation to being made righteous in Christ. Now, if you differ from what I'm going to say here, please excuse me. Few, if any, believers enjoy a flawless appreciation of that crown in this life. Few, very few. Why? Because we are hampered with too much sin, too much guilt, too much corruption, and too much baggage. <clears throat> All of which prevents us from rejoicing in the fact that we are righteous in Jesus Christ, O oh Lord. But nevertheless, with Paul, we should be confident that we have been crowned in righteousness. And the full enjoyment of that crown, or that crowning, is laid up for us in heaven. Even if we don't experience it here. Even if we have to struggle with doubts and fears and such like things. There is something waiting for us, my friends. Beyond the realms of time and sense. Where we shall enjoy the fullness of that crowning forevermore. 
And then Peter gives us yet another perspective of this crowd. He focuses on the reward that every Christian will receive at the second coming of Christ. First Peter chapter 5, verse 4. When the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. This is when the Christian will be made complete. Body and soul reunited in absolute holiness. So that our entire person receives the crown of glory. And here's the welcome that awaits every Christian on the day of judgment. When the unrighteous tremble in the face of eternal pain, the righteous in Christ will relish the crown of glory forevermore. And that's the prospect every believer anticipates. As Paul wrote regarding his own crown, he said, not to me only, but to all them that love his appearing. So let's make this our main challenge, living in this world, securing for ourselves through faith in the Lord Jesus, a crown of life, a crown of righteousness, and a crown of glory. And that will only be possible for us, my friends, if we surrender completely to his claims upon us as our Lord, our God, and our Redeemer. And it's that surrendering that God had in mind when he inspired Solomon to write these words in the proverb, chapter 23, verse 26. My son or my daughter, if that was applies, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. Uh, more than anything else, my friends, pursuit of that treble crown is what we should desire, what we should covet, and what we should be praying for every single day. So long as we are on mercy's ground, because this is the only place where you can pray for these things. And only then can we sing with relish the words of her final praise this morning of the life that shall never end. So let's heed our Lord's words. Learn of me. Where else and of whom else could we possibly learn such significant lessons 
subjects that are of eternal value to our souls. My friends, mull over those matters in your mind and ask yourself on this very Sabbath day, am I in possession of the crown of life? Am I in possession of the crown of righteousness as I stand before God on this Lord's day? And will I be wearing the crown of glory when I step into that great eternity? Serious, profound questions, my friends. Don't neglect them. Don't neglect them. And I can think of no better way to close the sermon than to quote our blessed Lord's words in this invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is it not true, my friends, that you are here this morning? Because you're desiring rest for your troubled soul. Amen. Let us pray. Blessed and most gracious God, we thank thee for these beautiful words that have been recorded for our benefit, and especially for thine own glory. May there be those present here this morning who will find it in their hearts to cry unto God, to make them willing in a day of thy power to learn of thee, the great teacher of men. And that no one present here today would be found not desiring the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, and the crown of glory. Bless us in thy mercy. Prepare us for what remains of thy day. For Jesus' sake, amen.